0: Welcome to episode 55 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI true crime cases. In this episode, we are speaking with retired agent Max Knoll, who served nearly 31 years with the FBI. He's interviewed about his investigation of the Unabomber terrorist Ted Kaczynski. For 15 years, multiple agencies, including the FBI, ATF, the Postal Inspection Service, and numerous state and local police departments worked mostly independently to identify the person responsible for setting off 16 bombs throughout the United States, bombs that killed three and seriously maimed and injured several victims. Max Knoll, who was planning to retire just prior to being handpicked for the assignment, was selected to head as the supervisor a new task force created by then Attorney General Janet Reno and FBI Director Louis Free. Max Knoll and his multi-agency team worked with FBI management to devise a strategy to manage the massive manpower, and paper-intensive major investigation, codename Unabomber, a case that had previously frustrated and overwhelmed all investigators involved. Ted Kaczynski's name was among the huge list of potential suspects. As luck would have it, the Unabomber's anonymity was finally cracked when Kaczynski released his infamous manifesto. Knoll and several other members of the task force received the attorney general's award for distinguished service for their efforts. And Max Knoll, along with SAC Jim Freeman and ASAC Terry Turchie, wrote a book, Unabomber, How the FBI Broke Its Own Rules to Capture the Terrorist Ted Kaczynski. It's all about how after 17 years, they were finally able to identify, capture, and convict Ted Kaczynski, the notorious Unabomber. This is another one of those fascinating cases that's going to take us two episodes to get through. In part one, we talk about the difficulty of the investigation, and of bringing all of those different agencies to work together as one. In part two, once we've identified who the Unabomber is, Max tells us all about what it took in order to plan an arrest scenario that would make sure that no one was harmed, not Ted Kaczynski, not the investigators involved, and certainly no more members of the public. Both episodes are absolutely fascinating. I also want to remind you that I touched on this case once before early on in episode three, when I spoke to Jim Fitzgerald, who was the profiler assigned to the task force. So you might want to go back and and listen to that again, too. Before we get to the interview, I just want to let you know that I am stuck over at Amazon for my book, pay to play about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. I've been trying to get to 50 reviews, and I'm still stuck at 48. So if you've read the book, you've enjoyed it, please go over to Amazon and uh, give it a review. I do want to tell you about a message that I got a few days ago, Uh, a message on LinkedIn from Bryant. And I loved it. This is the message he sent. I thoroughly enjoy listening to your podcast. It's been great to hear it improve with every episode. You are a master interviewer and storyteller. I loved your message, Bryant. You know that because I sent you a message back right away thanking you for listening and letting you know, I listened to some of those earlier episodes and I just cringe, wasn't quite sure of myself, but now I'm just enjoying the process. I actually visualize that we're all listening at the same time, but I am the one that was appointed to ask all the questions for the group. I'm having a blast. So I want to make sure you understand that as your group leader, as the main listener, that I need to hear from you. If there is a particular case that you want me to review, let me know. I am still looking for uh, someone to talk about healthcare fraud, definitely the opiate epidemic. But I'm still working on that, but I know I'll come through eventually. So thank you so much for your tweets and your posts and your emails and your messages. Keep them coming. There's so much going on in the political arena with the FBI. I want to remind every one of you that the FBI are those street agents working every day on these type of cases to make sure that the public is safe. Now here's the show.
1: I'm excited to introduce my guest, Max Knoll. Hi, Max. Hi, Jerry. I was going through your book, Unabomber, How the FBI Broke Its Own Rules to Capture the Terrorist, Ted Kaczynski. One of the things that I read was this sentence that I think sums up the whole investigation. I want to see if you agree. It says that the process to investigate this case was complicated By multiple and overlapping layers of bureaucracy, institutional pride, professional jealousies, and individual egos. What do you think about that line?
2: I think it's a uh, summary of uh, 15 years of frustration in trying to solve the case um, until 1993 when the new Attorney General of the United States, Janet Reno, saw fit to put together a real task force, not a task force in name, but a task force where... uh, all federal agencies were working under the same roof for the same uh, bosses um, and uh, sharing information completely. Prior to that time, we had task forces, which were task forces in name only. People would come together every uh, 30 days or so to share information. And uh, anyone who's worked a case uh, on a task force like that knows that um, those task forces just really aren't um, uh, real effective. These cases didn't come to our attention in chronological order. People don't understand that. The first two cases weren't even known to anyone outside of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms until after the third bombing. And after the third bombing, which was aboard American Airlines Flight 444 bound from Chicago to Washington, D.C., and took that plane down on an emergency landing before it crashed, uh, the then- Bomb examiner at FBI laboratory, head of the bomb unit, Chris Rooney, said, these construction techniques are very, very unusual. And I can't believe that this is the only bomb this person has ever sent. So Chris put together uh, a publication that he circulated to his contemporaries in the bomb field, forensic bomb field. And sure enough, an ATF bomb examiner recognized They were very similar to two bombings that had occurred, one in Chicago and one in Evanston, Evanston, Illinois, uh, several years before. So they got a hold of Chris. And they concluded that because of the construction techniques that there was a serial bomber now out and about. So that was one instance through construction techniques. Then, because he hadn't been recognized for what he was doing, the Unabomber began to put a small metal tag inside of his bombs, which he stamped with the letters FC so that he knew it would survive the blast of the bomb. And he became known as FC because he wanted credit, and law enforcement had been giving him credit because they hadn't put together the same bomber was doing these. So he helped us along by putting FC tags So Janet Reno declared in 1993, after the resumption of bombings, that we needed a a real task force. She went to um, Louis Free, the new director of the FBI, and uh, told him that uh, she wanted the FBI to head the task force and got his concurrence. He agreed. She went to the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Lloyd Benson, under whom uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, worked at that time, and got his concurrence. Then she went to the uh, Postmaster General of the United States And got the concurrence of the Postmaster General uh, to include the postal inspectors in the investigation. Because we had um, bombings during the preceding 15 years that fit into the prime jurisdiction of each of those federal agencies. And um, Louis Free appointed George Cloud, then uh, uh, head inspector of the FBI, to head the task force up. George chose to put it in San Francisco. And... uh, He came to San Francisco with carte blanche for all the manpower and resources of the San Francisco Office of the FBI. We had equal amounts of postal inspectors, ATF agents, and uh, FBI agents uh, working the case uh, from the inception. Uh, That was further complicated by... uh, having uh, 15 different local police agencies doing their own investigations and uh, 10 uh, local district attorneys directing the investigations in their jurisdictions, as well as seven different offices of the United States attorneys, uh, each of whom uh, was directing its own investigation in its own district. So uh, the task of the initial task force was to bring all of those entities together, put aside all of the uh, uh, things that you just mentioned, uh, and work for one common goal, and that was to um, solve this previously unsolvable investigation.
1: I can imagine that you were just stepping over each other and getting in each other's way, and it seems like it was the best decision uh, to create this task force. And what was your role?
2: At uh, that particular time, I was selected by, uh, uh, in, in Bureau Parlance, uh, I was uh, of retirement age and sitting in a resident agency uh, 15 or 20 minutes from my home, posting and coasting, getting ready to go into retirement, uh, when George came to town and uh, reached out and said, uh, I want you. And I was got a phone call that said, uh, report uh, tomorrow morning to San Francisco, button everything else up that you've got because you're on the new task force. And uh, I objected vehemently, saying I knew nothing about bombings. And they said that's okay. there are plenty of people that do. George wants you as a uh, one of his journeyman FBI agents to be on this task force. so um, it was um, a difficult thing at first uh, to work with uh, other agencies and an equal uh, on equal footing. Uh, we had investigative teams. Uh, formed on that first task force made up, uh, comprised of uh, an FBI agent, an ATF agent, a postal inspector, um, an analyst, and so forth. And we just started attacking the, uh, uh, the problem that was presented, to us, which was uh, uh, 15 years of unsolved uh, bombings. Before we move
1: on, tell me a little bit more about you. When did you join the FBI and why did you join the FBI?
2: Well, I joined the FBI in um, June of 1968. I had um, prepared myself with a um, a degree in political science and uh, uh, history for a civil service type career. I ended up uh, back in my hometown working for the Catholic Diocese of outstate Nebraska, uh, administering federal um, programs within the Office of Education and coaching football and basketball at a local um, uh, Catholic high school. I was a good friend of the resident agent in my hometown who was volunteering his services as a uh, coach, also a part-time coach. He knew that uh, I had been interested and wanted uh, to come into the FBI. So he strongly encouraged me to apply. My father-in-law was dying and my my wife didn't want to leave uh, our hometown. uh, So we stayed there. Uh, After my father-in-law died, uh, there was no real compelling reason to stay in my hometown, so I applied for the FBI and uh, was accepted. My first office was Sacramento. I worked in Sacramento for a year, uh, and then I was transferred to the uh, San Francisco Division, and I spent the next 30 years uh, working uh, in the San Francisco Division. I started off an investigation, and uh, a short time later, uh, I went to... uh, a firearms training school and became a uh, firearms instructor. And uh, shortly thereafter, I was appointed as the first full-time uh, principal firearms instructor in the San Francisco Division, uh, responsible for administering the uh, firearms uh, defensive tactics program to our division of uh, well over 400 agents. In addition, I taught uh, in uh, most Northern California police academies uh, uh, in Firearms and, and defensive tactics and I did that for a period of almost eight years full-time then I returned to um, uh, the investigative uh, uh, field and um, Was assigned traditional organized crime and labor racketeering Worked in the labor racketeering field uh, uh, in organized crime field for the next several years and uh, In the late 1980s uh, my partner and I uh, through a labor racketeering case that we had, developed information that a um, sitting federal district judge in San Jose, California, allegations of his being corrupt, and George Clough, the inspector who came to head Unabomb, was my ASAC at that time. Uh, apparently, George told me later, he, he um, appreciated my work ethic and what I had done on that very politically sensitive case. And so when he came to San Francisco, he reached out and said, uh, I want you. I didn't have any choice. <laughs> I, if I was going to stay in the FBI, I was going to work uh, uh, the Unabomb case. Why don't you take us,
1: um, you know, start us off with this task force? Now, all these people are coming together, have never really worked together. They've got this phenomenal, unbelievable task of trying to pull all the information that each agency has developed over the years. I can't even imagine where you would start with that. So I'm going to let you just, you know, take us from the beginning.
2: Okay. When uh, uh, Chief Inspector Calau got to San Francisco, he put together this task force of equal amounts of uh, uh, FBI agents, ATF agents, and postal inspectors. Plus, as as the Bureau was uh, prone to do in in those days, I I would assume they kind of do it today today also, uh, was to throw a lot of manpower at a problem. We had... um, supervisorial uh, people abounding. We had as many supervisors looking over our shoulders um, while we were conducting investigation uh, as there were those of us conducting investigation. But one of the first things that um, we did, they did, the uh, management team was, they decided that we needed to build a UniBomb file. We needed to get all the information from all over the country, from all of the agencies, bring it to San Francisco, and compile it into one comprehensive file. So every office in the FBI was requested uh, and instructed to package up their unibomb file in their office because this was a major case, major case uh, uh, in the FBI, and send their files to San Francisco. Uh, in addition, uh, the Postal Inspection Service did the same thing as well as ATF. So we got all of that information uh, into the task force. Now, as you can well imagine, there was a lot of uh, duplication in those, in those files. Uh, for instance, if a uh, Airtel went out from the Office of Origin uh, to uh, 13 offices directing investigation, we should have had 14 copies of that Airtel. So we had to go through all of those files that came in and weed out duplicitous material, weed out administrative material, and mark things that were investigative in nature. And as it turned out, the file that we put together ended up uh, comprising 89,000 hard copy volumes of information. None duplicated? That was after the duplication uh, was eliminated. Wow. So there were 89,000 files uh, in total and that totaled well over 11 million pages of hard copy. Now, uh, we recognize that uh, some of those things were more important than than others. We had to maintain the the administrative things and so forth, so we removed over 89,000 investigative documents. Now, that isn't pages, but that's documents, and had them loaded into a... Uh, that time, the Rapid Start um, uh, case management system. And then from Rapid Start, and we had a Rapid Start team doing all of that, from, from Rapid Start, those investigative documents were downloaded into a complete retrieval program called SCI Index, which was something absolutely brand new to the FBI. Now, up until that point, investigators in the FBI and the other agencies on this case have been conducting their investigation on 3 by 5 index cards with the little old index box on their desk. We, we loaded that information into Xi Index. Uh, for the first time in my career as an FBI agent, um, the FBI made available to each one of us uh, investigators on the task force uh, a computer, and it was loaded with the software for Xi Index and that information was now available to us as investigators on our own computers, which we could search and build our own investigative files. And it was a a godsend, uh, because rather than have to go to the main file of 11 million uh, pages, we could now let our fingers do the walking on the computer. But it was a uh, double-edged sword, because we all had to be trained in how to use those computers. And now, this was back test. at a
1: time when most people, especially in the FBI, didn't have computers on their desk.
2: No. no, We were the only ones in the San Francisco division that had, you know, personal computers, uh, desktop computers. So uh, we were able to um, begin the investigative process um, because we had those computers. Now, that first task force, uh, that, was, that was probably the most monumental thing that we had to do. But then uh, we had to decide. The task force had to decide uh, how to approach the investigation, and the consensus was we needed help from the public because we had very little forensic information from bombs because the Unabomber uh, did all kinds of things to avoid detection, and we didn't. We only had one or two items of forensic value. Through the pre, from the preceding 15 years, so the consensus among all of us was that we needed the public's help. And how could we get the public's help? Well, one way we believe strongly in was through a reward. Um, then the question began uh, became how much how much money would bring someone forward who hasn't come forward for 15 years? And we came up with the one million dollar reward. Well, at that particular time, the FBI didn't get money appropriated from Congress for rewards. So we had to find money for that reward. And we had a whole team of agents uh, uh, led by uh, uh, an agent from headquarters that went out into the various industries that had been affected by uh, the Unabomb bombings, uh, universities and the medical industry, the airline industry, and entered into binding contracts with them for pledging money so that if we got information from someone who, which led to the identification, the arrest, and the prosecution of the Unabomber, they would qualify for a one million dollar reward so uh that took the better part of the first year to get all of those contracts entered into and to have that um, reward money available then that is was so one, that is, that is so unbelievable it was almost like it's it was like labor- we were fundraising. Yes, absolutely. It's labor-intensive. We had a whole team of people doing that. So then the question became, well, how do we get that information out to the public and get the public to come back into the task force? We didn't need information coming to different divisions, uh, which had a rudimentary knowledge of the case. We needed the information to be coming to the task force. And to bypass the, all the bureaucratic levels of one division, getting it and forward it to another division in a timely manner, and so on and so forth. So the suggestion came up that we get a 1-800 toll-free number. And we encouraged the public to call that number. And that number would be manned 24 hours a day, and it would come directly into the task force. And that was a great idea. So... Our technical people work with the telephone company. We got our 1-800 line. We had a, an office uh, dedicated to uh, a bank of phones with uh, people manning it 24 hours a day. Then the question became, well, now we have to go out to the public and ask for their help. So in October, the task force was formed in July of 1993. In October, Director Free, along with the head of the uh, ATF and the Postal Inspection Service, went on national television with a national news conference uh, announcing to the public that uh, the task force was formed and up and working in San Francisco, announced that we had this 1-800-TOLL-FREE number, which a person, a member of the public, could call, uh, re- remain anonymous, get a secret number only known to them and to the task force, and if the information that they gave us led to the identification, the arrest, and the uh, prosecution of the Unabomber, they'd qualify for a $1 million reward. Now, in order to stimulate the public to calling us, we felt that we needed something to get the ball rolling. Well, When the Unabomber reappeared in 1993 by sending a bomb to Tiburon, California, to the home of Dr. Charles Epstein, an internationally renowned geneticist, followed by the following day a bomb blowing up on Yale University's campus in the office of Dr. David Galanter, a very well-known computer specialist, there was also a letter that arrived at the New York Times uh, offices in New York City to a fashion editor named Warren Hoag. The letter, uh, Yes, and no one knows why Warren Hogue got but it was addressed to him personally. And the letter was typed on the one piece of forensic uh, evidence that we had. The letter was typed on a Smith Corona circa 1925 to 30 typewriter with PICA style type with 2.54 centimeter spacing. That was constant from the very beginning of this case, uh, almost the very beginning, through the entire case. Same typewriter being used to type labels and letters and and so on and so forth. The one constant that connected almost all of these bombings was that Smith-Corona typewriter, because the labels on the letters, the uh, devices themselves, were typed with that typewriter and so forth. Construction techniques, FC tags, And the Smith-Corona typewriter, that was pretty much the way the Unabomber was identified throughout the entire 15 years of this until 1993. Now, this letter that went to Warren Hogue at the New York Times introduced himself to Warren Hogue as, Hi, I'm FC, a member of an anarchist group. The FBI refers to me as the Unabomber. If you don't know who I am, talk to the FBI and they will fill you in. I just want to tell you that I'm announcing to the world that I'm back and I'm going to resume my campaign of terrorism. I won't use the moniker FC anymore, but here is a secret number. Don't share it with anyone except the FBI. I will use it to validate any future communications. And he gave us what appeared to be A social security number. And we identified who that was, the social security number was. He had, he didn't even have any knowledge that he had a social security number, but that's who it was. So now we, and that letter to the New York Times was typed on the Smith Corona circa 1925 to 30 typewriter with Pica style type and 2.54 spacing, as were the address labels on the bombs to David Galarter and to Dr. Charles Epstein. So,
1: as far as you know, Ted Kaczynski didn't know this.
2: Oh, sure, he, he had he, he had to know it. He had we, we found three antique typewriters in his cabin, one that he used for unibomb communications, one that he used for communication with his family, and one that he used to communicate with uh, uh, newspapers and businesses and so on and so forth. So, no, he was very well aware of it. Okay, uh, okay, but he did it.
1: So, now, whose social security number was it that you? said he gave out?
2: Social Security number that he used was a uh, prisoner in uh, a Northern California state prison. Uh, We interviewed him extensively. He didn't even know he had uh, a Social Security number. Uh, He hung out a lot at uh, uh, Greyhound Bus Depot in Sacramento, and we know uh, post-investigation that Ted Kaczynski was using buses to travel to Sacramento and to the San Francisco Bay Area, and he passed through that station frequently, so we strongly suspect he either found it, or he stole it, or what have you, and used it as his method of identifying himself uh, and validating uh, his communications uh, after that.
1: That seems so strange, because he could have just made up a number.
2: Yeah, well, and maybe he did. Maybe it was just by happenstance that it was the number that this prisoner had, but it was you know, it was hyphenated uh, just like a Social Security number, and we, you know, we presumed that's what it was. So that letter goes to Warren Hope. Now, when the letter was examined, they discovered through their, their super high-sensitive high microscopes that there was indented writing on that letter, which was not visible to the naked eye. And that indented writing said, call Nathan R. Wednesday, 7 p.m. So FBI agents interviewed every person at the New York Times who had access to that letter to see if anyone took a note down in which that letter was underneath it inadvertently and transferred that indented writing to the letter. And no one said they did. So the presumption was that the Unabomber had written a note to himself on a piece of paper, several sheets above the piece of paper that he used to type the letter to the New York Times. So Director Free at this press conference in October announced the formation of the task force, announced the 1-800-TOLL-FREE number and your ability to remain anonymous with the information, announced the $1 million reward, and then told the public that about this indented writing call Nathan R. Wednesday 7 p.m. and ask people if they had any idea of a person who fit the then profile of the Unabomber uh, to come forward with that information. So that stimulated and started the responses to the 1-800-TOLL-FREE number. And people don't understand that that's a great investigative technique. But once again, It's a very labor intensive thing. You have to man that line 24 hours a day. Once you stir the pot and put information out, people respond and on that one 800 toll free number, we got over 53,000 calls, all from people who believe that they were providing us with critical information about who they believe to be the Unabomber. Now, as a result of that, Nathan R., one of the big projects that we had on the initial task force was we identified every person that we could in the United States with the first name of Nathan and the or any derivative thereof, Matt, Nate, and so forth, and the last name beginning in the letter R. Oh, my God. It, That's like a needle in a haystack. Absolutely. There were 8,900 of them. Oh. And then... We beg- then we segregated those individuals named Nathan R into the areas that we knew the Unabomber had been at one time or another, and we knew the areas, you know, when he delivered a bomb by hand, and when he- all all those kinds of things, and we determined that there were 3,500 of those people. Then we proceeded to interview or have interviewed all 3,500 of those people whose names were Nathan, Nate, Matt, with the last name beginning in R. That's a labor-intensive uh, investigation. And in addition to all the other things that we were doing, that was uh, the number one investigative project of our first task force. So c- compiling the file, uh, putting together that file, doing the Nathan R. Uh, investigation... Then we decided to do a victimology project to try to see if any of our victims were connected whatsoever. So we had a whole team of people working on the victimology project, and one of the individuals working put together a uh, questionnaire that we sent to every victim, and the questionnaire uh, was, I believe, some 80 uh, uh, pages long, and had the victims answer the questions, and send them back to the task force. The victimology uh, committee then, group investigators, uh, went over them, entered that into their uh, investigative files, and then they brought each one of those victims, all uh, 14 of them, back, or 13 because one one was deceased, uh, to the task force for a week to appear before the victimology committee and tried to determine if there was any common thread, connecting any of the victims. So that was a uh, uh, pretty uh, labor-intensive thing. Then we began the historical review of all of the uh, bombings. And that was including a forensic review. And we identified different forensic uh, things that we needed the laboratory to go back over because forensic examination since 1978 had become better. We had better ways of developing latent fingerprints. We had better ways of uh, uh, DNA was just coming uh, uh, up, and we had DNA examinations and so on and so forth. So we uh, uh, put together uh, investigative teams that did that. We looked at the, uh, the bombs. We had a group of bombs in and around the Salt Lake City area, and then we had the bombs in and around Northern California. So uh, we started looking at them from a geographic uh, standpoint. What other locations
1: had he planet bombs? I know you talked about the one on the plane. Were there bombs outside of the California area?
2: Oh, yeah. First two bombs. One was on the University of uh, Illinois Chicago Circle Campus. The second bomb was at uh, Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. The third bomb was on board American Airlines Flight 444, uh, which left out of Chicago O'Hare and went to Washington, D.C., uh, Then after that, uh, they changed, the venue changed, and the bombs started uh, uh, coming and going uh, from the Salt Lake City area. Then in 1985 was the most prolific year. Uh, Bombs changed in the early 80s from Salt Lake City to Northern California. Then bombs were sent uh, to uh, Boeing's uh, Fabrication Division in Seattle, Washington, or Auburn, Washington, outside of Seattle. Uh, Then... His two most recent bombs, one went to uh, Harvard or Yale, and one went to uh, university uh, researcher, uh, medical researcher in Tiburon, California. So, you know, we, we had places, some of them were placed and some of them were mailed. On on the mailed ones, we knew where they were mailed from by their postmark, so we knew where he had to be on particular days. On the placed ones, we knew when they were placed, uh, so we knew that, you know, from an investigative standpoint, that the Unabomber had to be in those places on those dates. So the historic file review, the forensic reinvestigation, we asked for a behavioral profile update, the $1 million reward, the Nathan R, pretty much took up most of our time during the first year of the investigation. And obviously, after about a year's investigation, Uh, like all task forces, uh, our task force uh, began to deteriorate. Uh, Inspector Clough was promoted and uh, went on to become an SAC. Uh, His successor was uh, Bruce Gebhardt, who at that time had been an ASAC in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Bruce succeeded him. Uh, Other people began uh, being drained off of the task force. Uh, The Bureau left manpower in place. Postal inspectors, however, were promoted and um, gone on to new positions and not replaced. ATF agents were uh, uh, transferred, and uh, we had very few ATF agents. So, by April of the following year, 1994, um, the task force had deteriorated to a point where the uh, Bureau uh, reassigned it uh, to the San Francisco Division of the FBI, and it was uh, brought back into the San Francisco FBI under um, San Francisco's division's uh, control, um, and a new group of administrators were uh, appointed to oversee uh, the task force. So that was pretty much the first year. Now, in spite of all of that, then uh, the bombings got a lot more serious. Uh, The two bombs... uh, Uh, that started in 1993 uh, essentially blew the fingers off of the two recipients of them, but the bombs were much smaller. They were about the size of a VHS tape. They were contained in a uh, jiffy-padded envelope, uh, and they were uh, extremely uh, uh, more sophisticated than any of the bombs had been in the past, and that's what got the attention of everybody. So we knew uh, that sooner or later more people were going to be killed particularly in view of the fact that he sent that letter announcing what he was going to do. And, well, let me uh, ask
1: you this, because you were saying how, you know, because of the year time that had gone by that, that the task force itself as an entity was starting to deteriorate. What about the investigators?
2: How were they feeling? Were they discouraged? Well, sure. Uh, and we were losing investigators. Um, uh, the one um, thing that I'm very proud of is, is the Bureau didn't take investigators away. The Bureau uh, maintained the investigators on the task force, but we were losing ATF agents, we were losing postal inspectors, and uh, there was a, a small representation in April of 94 on what remained of the task force. For instance, uh, the task force in April of 94 had, uh, as investigators, I'm not talking about the uh, The supervisors, but the task force as investigators had nine FBI agents, two postal or two um, ATF agents, three postal inspectors, uh, and one postal police officer. So, you know, it had uh, before it had been equal. We'd had you know equal amounts of everybody. Now it was becoming less and less. So, in April of uh, '94, Jim Freeman one of the co-authors on, on the book with me was RSAC. He took over the management of the case, and um, he took over ultimately the management of the case. But he appointed um, Terry Churchy, who was a supervisor in the uh, Palo Alto Resident Agency, to become the operational supervisor in conducting the day-to-day operation. Now, in the book, we explain Jim's thinking about doing that, was that we had looked at this case for well over 15 years now, 16 years, in pretty much traditional fashion, and uh, we weren't any closer to solving it than we'd ever been. So he kind of went outside the norm and raised a lot of eyebrows by appointing Terry, who was a FCI supervisor, uh, to come and head the operation of the uh, bombing investigation looking for the Unabomber. Let me add and, uh, that for the
1: listeners, that FCI done for foreign counterintelligence.
2: Yes, and he was, in, he, was, he was in the Palo Alto Resident Agency, which was uh, a big foreign counterintelligence uh, resident agency in the San Francisco Division. So when Jim did that, it raised a lot of eyebrows on what does this uh, FCI supervisor know about supervising a uh, bombing investigation. Why do you mean both? What was Terry doing different than what
1: you, as the task force uh, squad leader,
2: is doing? uh, He did a lot of things differently at that particular point. I (laughs) I could I could talk for hours, but uh, Jim Jim's feeling on this was that uh, the way that a SCI uh, investigator looks at things is traditionally different than the way that that a uh, criminal Uh, person does. And he thought that it was important to introduce that um, different look uh, to the investigation. And he was true. Terry did. Terry looked at things uh, uh, differently and reorganized the task force. And uh, then Jim divested himself of his daily duties uh, as the SAC of the San Francisco Division and took over the case. First time in my career where i had an sac who knew almost as much about the case as i did he involved himself in the investigation on a daily basis as did uh, terry and we rebuilt the task force principally with fbi personnel with a smattering of uh, atf and postal people uh, uh, continuing with us uh during the next uh, year uh, a year and a half until you know we finally um, solve the
1: case. I'm glad you outlined, you know, their roles, because when I saw that the book was co-written by the SAC and the ASAC and the supervisor, I called you because I made that assumption that, you know, SACs and ASACs really don't know much about the inner workings of, you know, a case like this. They may know the outcome, but they really don't have that information about what's done on a daily basis.
2: And that's why this case was different, and that's why we wrote Breaking the FBI's Own Rules. Jim divested himself, became engrossed in the case. Terry was a supervisor who eventually was promoted to the ASAC level, and he was the operational uh, director of the case. And I became a term supervisor uh, from my position as an investigator under their new reorganization of the case. And... They reorganized the case into three squads, three different squads. We had the squad of which I became the acting supervisor on, which conducted all investigations. Then we had a squad that was under uh, a supervisor, a newly promoted supervisor named Joel Moss, that did all suspect resolutions. And what people don't understand is, We had 2,417 actual suspects, not people of interest, not people that we thought might be, but people that we believe that could very well be the Unabomber. Did you repeat that number again? 2,417 actual suspect files. Those were opened chronological by number. Ted Kaczynski's number was suspect number 2,416. Opened one file after we got the information on Ted Kaczynski, and that's because that information came in on the same day at the same time, and his name in the alphabet was after Kaczynski's, so that suspect became 2417, Kaczynski was 2416. So Terry and Jim got involved in this, that suspect resolution. We had too many suspects, we, we didn't need more suspects. We believe. Thoroughly, we probably had the suspect in our files, which we did. We just didn't have a case opened on him at the time. So they reorganized. My squad was an investigative squad. We conducted all inve- all the investigation and directed all the investigation all over the country. Louis Free gave us carte blanche. We traveled the country. If we needed work done somewhere and it wasn't getting done with the rapidity or with the people who were knowledgeable, we went and did it ourselves. We traveled to Salt Lake, we traveled to Chicago, we traveled all over the country uh, as investigators with investigative teams assisting those divisions in conducting the investigation that we were requesting. And well, let we, me add uh, this
1: yeah, let me just add this again because I like to make sure that everyone listening, you know, understands why that's significant. And that's because in most FBI investigations we set out leads. So Somebody in San Francisco doesn't go to Chicago, they send out a communication outlining what they need done, and somebody in Chicago actually conducts those interviews or, or does, uh, you know, does that uh, investigation. So this is significant that we're spending this money to actually send the Unabomber task force people around the country to conduct no. their own investigations.
2: And the example you use, Chicago, we had an arm of the Unabom Task Force in Chicago. That was another thing that we did. We opened a full time arm in Chicago, which had investigators uh, John Larson and Mary Bust- uh, Bustamante were our principal investigators in Chicago. But they needed assistance, and sometimes we would go to Chicago to assist them. We would go to crime scenes and look at crime scenes ourselves as investigators. Uh, the SAC and the ASAC uh, were integral parts of this investigation, did that also. So that when I, as a supervisor and agent, would go into my SAC and make a, uh, a request, I didn't have to regurgitate everything about the case because he knew the case almost as well as I did. He was involved on a daily basis. Very, very different from what we normally did. Now, so, Then we had one squad, which was strictly an administrative squad, and a supervisor named Penny Harper headed that squad. And that was important because we had people coming into the task force now, TDY from all over the nation helping us. We had analysts coming on 30-day stints. We had the agents coming on 30- or 90-day stints to help us with the investigation because we needed the personnel of the San Francisco Division supplemented by additional people which raises all kinds of other labor-intensive problems. Housing for those people, cars for those people, manning of the 1-800 line uh, 24 hours a day and so forth. Penny squad was an administrative squad that handled all of those things. So as a supervisor of the investigative squad, I didn't have to worry about all that stuff. It was being handled for me. That was, a, again, a break in uh, uh, how we traditionally handled things. And we set up a chat Initially, George Klaus set a task force up also in Sacramento because that was a, a nexus of several of the bombs. But then we created the task force in Salt Lake City, and we created an arm of the task force in Chicago. Those were the principal areas. But as investigators, we traveled to all those areas to look at crime scenes, to talk with people individually, and so forth. So this was I a good I- I- approach.
1: Yeah, and I have one more question. Okay, so it's been a year now. We're talking about a year after the task force has been created, and you're really nowhere closer than you were when you started. What kind of reaction, what kind of pressure were you getting from headquarters and uh, Attorney, General, uh, Attorney General Reno? I mean, were you feeling that? Well,
2: Oh, absolutely. But the Attorney General was very supportive. The director was very supportive. Where we were getting pressure and where we weren't getting cooperation was from SACs around the nation and from the unit at headquarters handling the investigation. And we had to overcome all of that. And in December of 1994, following the killing of uh, Thomas Mosher, a uh, New York advertising executive, Director Free came to San Francisco and met with the task force. And we outline that in our book uh, extensively. It was a very important meeting. Uh, he excluded Jim Freeman. He wanted to talk with the investigators, and because I was one of the journeyman FBI agents, I kind of uh, uh, got thrust forward with uh, putting the question, posing questions to the director, if you will. And the director, finally, after he made his presentation, told us how much he's supporting us and all he said to the agents and the postal inspectors and the ATF agents working this, you know, what is causing the problem? Why are we having so much difficulty in solving this case? And being the outspoken, brash person that I was, I outlined four things for the director. And one of the things I said was direct free, This is a major case. And as you know, major case in the FBI has specific meaning. It isn't just a term. There are specific budget things. There are specific reporting things and so on and so forth. And leads being sent out have 10-day deadlines on a major case. You send a lead out, it's supposed to be back, covered and back within 10 days at that time. And we weren't getting them back. And we would send these Leads out, let's say to Los Angeles, and we never ever hear back from them. Mm. And we can't send agents to every one of the divisions to cover leads. So you get on the phone and you call down there, and the supervisor in charge to say, "Hey, pal, we have our own investigative priorities in this division. Our SAC sets them, and he tells me that I have Cartman or I have the ability to cover him when we get around to him." as long as they fit within what we're doing in this division. And I told the director, you know, that that's inappropriate. You know, you tell us to do this work, and then you want to know why we can't get work done and why we have to have these travel budgets and so forth when other offices are non-responsive. Because if you remember back at that time, this is when the FBI was decentralizing and was giving a lot more autonomy to the field. And when SACs are saying, hey, you know, we'll cover it when we get around to it. How can you come up with an investigative program that attacks a problem if you can't even get results of the leads back. So that's number one. He said, okay, what's next? And I said, well, one of the problems in the past with this case has been that the Office of Origin, which was originally Chicago, and then it became San Francisco later, acquiesced their investigation to the explosives bomb unit, and we weren't getting the forensic things that we were requesting from the explosive bomb unit on, and the laboratory back in a timely fashion. We said we identified something like 40 or 50 new forensic issues and sent them back, to, and they said, hey, we'll, we'll do them when, when we can. We, and they were conducting the investigation as opposed to the field. They didn't know the case like the task force knew the case. We knew the case better than anyone, okay? He said, okay, what else? I said, well, we're not getting the service out of the Behavioral Analysis Unit at Quantico. Uh, we're asking, this is uh, 16 years after the beginning, uh, we're asking for a new behavioral profile to assist us in looking at these 2,417 suspects, and they're just telling us the profile's a profile. And then we say, well, which profile? There were, I believe, seven different profiles done over the years and they were dramatically different.
1: Hmm.
2: Who, which one do we pay attention to? Can't you do a composite profile for us? So he said, okay, and he addressed that issue. And then lastly, we said the lack of continuity at FBI headquarters is killing us. The unit back there that is directing this investigation it doesn't know anything about the investigation. He said, well, give me an example. And I said, well, you remember a little over a year ago, when you had your press conference and you announced the $1 million reward, the 800 toll-free number, and the existence of Nathan R. Note, and we asked the public about Nathan R.? And he said, yes. I said, well, two days ago, we were having a conversation with the supervisor at headquarters and his unit chief, and we're talking about other divisions not responding to our Nathan R. leads we're sending out in a timely fashion, and in the in the middle of that conversation, the supervisor at headquarters who's running this case said, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute, pal, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back up there for a minute. Would you please, pal? Hey, pal, would you tell me, who the hell is this Nathan R. guy that you're talking about anyway?
1: <laughs> no. I was
2: incredulous. I said, Director Free, you announced it on national TV. We know it here. Everyone in the United States knows it except the supervisor at FBI headquarters who's running this case. He he hadn't even engrossed himself in this case enough to know who Nathan R. was. Well, that was all changed. Director Free addressed every one of those issues. He went out to SACs and all the divisions and told them he was holding them personally responsible for a timely investigation when it was requested. He changed the laboratory. He assigned a person from FBI laboratory to our task force, and worked between the task force and the laboratory in resolving problems and getting investigation conducted. He did the same thing with the behavioral analysis unit and assigned a, uh, a full – and the behavioral analysis, Terry Churchy said they aren't going to service our case. We're going to go over to the foreign counterintelligence side and get one of our behavioral analysis program people, the back people, to come over and assist us because we're not getting anything out of Quantico. Uh, uh, those are, those the- are two different. Those are two different units.
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah, FCI has a whole different uh, program than the the Critical Incident Response Group in Quantico. So we had our own behavioral analysis person from the FCI side of the house, and the, and the director was incredulous. He changed that and assigned a full time person from Quantico to come to San Francisco and become a part of our task force and learn the case as much as we did. So was, was that Jim Fitzgerald? Yeah, and it became Jim Fitzgerald. And Jim became an integral part of our our group. Then he assigned a permanent supervisor for the duration of the case at FBI headquarters, Tom Nunnemaker, And Tom was wonderful because he got into the case and he learned the case and he did the case because he knew the case now. We didn't have that revolving door at headquarters where a supervisor comes into the unit, gets his uh, uh, card punched or his clock punched, and goes on about the way. And now we got a new one that we've got to explain the case to every time we go in for a request. So this was a very uh, seminal part of this investigation uh, and was, again, another one of those times where we were breaking rules and uh, going forward with a completely different type of investigation. Jim Freeman, as he director of this investigation in the SAC could circumvent all layers of bureaucracy and go directly to Louis Free. Terry Churchy had a very close personal relationship with Janet Reno. He could go directly back there and talk to Janet Reno without going through all of the position papers and all of the suits that wanted to accompany and go over and you know get face time with the attorney general. Terry could go by himself uh, and uh, present uh, what was going on. So our problem wasn't with pressure coming from the director or pressure coming from the attorney general. Our problem was the artificial type of pressure that was imposed on us by SACs and other division and by uh, lower level bureau headquarters people. I guess that answers your question. But uh, can you think of another
1: case? like this because you're 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 talking about your breaking rules but those SACs, and I'm not trying to
2: defend them not at all but it was a totally different thing and and I understand their position but you know to try to manage a case that has 11 million pieces of uh, paper on it and try to come up with a uh, uh, good way to attack it and, and so forth was, was virtually impossible when you didn't have concurrence with everybody. And uh, that's why uh, the director allowed this case. And it's the only case of its kind, because it wasn't like... Uh, we have other big cases, certainly, but none of the magnitude that span 17 years and have the size of file that this was.
1: Let me ask you one more question about that.
2: Yes. Bear? you had gotten the
1: immediate cooperation of all of these offices and all of these agencies. If something like what you ended up with had been created at the very beginning, do you think that the case would have been solved sooner?
2: No, I doubt it. I, I, it made it more difficult, and it made it – you you asked about the kind of pressure we had and so forth for not solving it. I'm not sure that that um, it would have been solved um uh, any sooner because the the thing that solved the case uh, was the publication of the manifesto, which is an all, altogether different issue. But we didn't have the manifesto until later. So it would have made the case easier to investigate, but I don't know that we ever would have solved it any quicker. Because what so, you needed was that piece of evidence. What we need. Yeah, what we needed was more evidence to, to share with the public and more evidence to uh, um, look at and so forth. Uh, and again, you know, people say, well, it's easy. His brother told you who it was. Well, we have 59 other brothers tell us the same thing, you know. And once that information was proffered to us by the attorney, Tony Basitli, back in D.C., we identified Ted Kaczynski before they ever told us who his client's brother was. We had him in the files but because of the rudimentary uh, description he gave us gave us of his client's brother, we were able to go into our uh, computer files. We had, people find this uh, uh, interesting. We had, we were collecting names from public source places with subpoenas and what have you of every place that we knew the Unabomber had ever been or had ever alluded to in his bombs. And we had, well over 85 million names in a mainframe computer back at Bureau headquarters. And you can't manipulate it on a mainframe. So we had to, and I'm talking about something I know nothing about, but we had to hire a computer specialist, and they had to buy a state-of-the-art computer at that time, which was called a SunSpark 10, and download names from those 85 million names into the sunspark system so our computer specialists who we'd hired outside, from outside the bureau could manipulate them and give us computer runs of people. We'd say, okay, we want anyone born in Chicago uh, during this particular period of time or in Illinois in this particular time, graduated from uh, uh, high school in the Chicago area, went to undergraduate school in uh, Salt Lake City, and who got an advanced degree in uh, California. And he'd manipulate the uh, computer data and come out with printouts. We had a huge room filled from floor to ceiling with boxes of computer printouts that our analysts were going over on a daily basis. And I'm not talking about one or two boxes. I'm talking about 50, 60, 70 boxes worth of computer printouts trying to find that person. Well, once we got the information from the attorney after the publication of the manifesto, we were able to have the file searched, uh, the computer search, and it came up with Ted Kaczynski's name before Anthony Basigli and David Kaczynski actually told us who David Kaczynski's brother Ted was. So, I mean, so what was what was the
1: hesitation th- in just giving you that information? What- were they trying to, what were they trying to negotiate? You know, why couldn't he just give you that information? <laughs>
2: well, David David read the manifesto when it was published, and the manifesto publication was extremely controversial, too. You know, the, the law enforcement concept at that time is we don't give in to the demands of a terrorist. Yet he demanded that if we publish, that he would quit killing people, he reserved the right to commit acts of sabotage. So we had to make a decision. What do we do? Do we have it published or not have it published? And then publishing it in a national media is expensive. Now we've got to convince somebody to publish it. New York Times or the Washington Post were who he preferred. And so, I mean, that was a whole different ball of wax that Terry and Jim handled and so forth. But um, it was was an extremely difficult thing. So when it was finally published in uh, August, of uh, late August of 1995, The person that we were looking for, who would recognize the writing and the ideas, was David Kaczynski. But David was out of the country. He and his wife were on vacation. And when they came back from vacation in September, his wife, who had long suspected that her brother-in-law could be the Unabomber, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why, and she went to him and said, this manifesto that the FBI just published sounds just like your brother. And he pooh-poohed it. So she took him to a library and set him down at the computer, because they didn't have a computer at home, Him pulled it up online and had him read it. David told uh, uh, our agents later when they interviewed him that the hair stood up on the back of his neck when he read it, because he knew his brother had read it. But now he's in a quandary. This is in September. What do I do? Well, how did he know, how did he know his brother had written uh, that manifesto? Because found. he had a... Because he had a document his brother had given him uh, 20 years previous, which outlined all of the ideas contained in the manifesto. And because there were all kinds of uh, things in the manifesto, idioms that his brother used, um, spellings that his brother, the way his brother spelled certain things, punctuation, he knew that his brother had written it at that particular point. But now it's so a quadrature. Yeah, my question what to you then. Do? Yeah, is is why doesn't he just call? I mean, why doesn't why <laughs> doesn't he just of, tell that's you? Kind of all of our questions because he then went to his wife's good friend, Susan Swanson was her name. She was an attorney working for a law firm as an investigator in Chicago, and they gave her the information and their what they suspected and. She tried to discount his brother as the Unobama and she couldn't. And after uh, a period of time, her firm, which was allowing her to do this pro bono, free, uh, said, that's enough. We can't do any more, you know. You've got to do something else. Yeah, like call the FBI and let them figure out whether it's him or not. That's what you would think and what I would think, but that isn't the way citizens think sometimes. So they came back. They had gone to a former FBI agent who had worked in the critical incident response group, Quantico. And they gave him the 21, the 20-page document that he'd gotten many years ago and the manifesto. And he was a linguistics analysis person. He was a person uh, who did comparisons. And he read them both and produced a big report and came back to them and said, well... It could be him and it could not be him. And I can't say for sure and what have you. Our disappointment was, this is a former FBI agent, and he never came forward to the task force with the information. Now they're in a quandary. So Susan Swanson had a law school friend who was an attorney in Washington, D.C., and his name was Anthony Basigli. And Tony Basigli was a well-known criminal defense or, uh, uh attorney defense attorney who'd handled several cases in which the fbi uh, uh, was the investigating agency on the fci side on espionage and that type of thing and he had a good working relationship with an agent so he reached out for that agent and that agent was no longer in washington dc he was now in south carolina so the agent said well Tony, I can't help you. I'm in South Carolina. I don't know anything about that case, but here's the name of the case agent for the Unabom case in Washington, D.C., and it was an agent named Molly Flynn. Very few people know about Molly and the part she played in this. So he thanked the agent and got a hold of Molly Flynn, and he presented Molly with this document that David Kaczynski had from 20 years previous, and ask her to have the FBI examine it. So Molly took it to the laboratory and had the laboratory examine it. And it was typed on an old antique typewriter by an old antique typewriter. And of course, we have one typewriter that's been used during the entire case, which was the Smith's Corona, circa 1925 to 30, Pica-style type, 2.54 spacing. Documents examiners looked at it and said, nope. Not that typewriter, can't be him. It's a different typewriter. Wow. Didn't do any more examination of it. So Molly brought it back. Molly was our representative in Washington D.C. Molly got on the phone and called San Francisco. She knew how big the case was. She knew the amount of information we were getting in, and she didn't want this to get lost because she read it and she read the manifesto, and she said the ideas were exact. She called the task force and she she got a hold of my counterpart Joel Moss and told Joel the story. And Joel said, "Send it to me through the bureau, regular bureau mail, but also fax me a copy today. I'd like to see the faxed copy." So Molly did. Joel read it and got excited. Joel called Terry Turchi, our boss. Terry convened a meeting of Joel Moss himself, me. And our behavioral profiler, Kathy Puckett. And we went outside the office with a copy of that document and had lunch and read it. Everybody got excited but me. I oh said, really? <laughs> it very well may be. It very well may be the person. But, you know, I know how difficult it is to get a warrant or a conviction based upon a written document that has the same ideas. So you know, I'll I'll do my work and what have you, but I you know, I don't know. So anyway, we took the document back into the office and Terry laid it on Jim Freeman's desk. We thought that Mr. Freeman was gone for the day. He wasn't. He came back and read it and immediately said, This is the Unabomber, whoever wrote this. So now we have to start the process of going to Tony Basigli and saying, we're very interested in your client, who that may be, and so on and so forth. So we began a negotiation process. And it was during the course of that negotiation process that he told us that his client had a brother who had been a um, professor at the University of California uh, at Berkeley, who had grown up in the Chicago area, and so on and so forth. And from that information he gave us, we were able to search our files and determine that it was... Ted couldn't be anybody other than Ted Kaczynski. Then Tony arranged a meeting between the agents from the task force and his client, David Kaczynski, and Kathy Bucket and Lee Stark and Jim Wilson went from the task force and interviewed David Kaczynski. And uh, I got sent to uh, Montana to start developing the PC for a search or an arrest warrant on where he lived and, and so forth. So, uh, well, let me ask you again. What were they negotiating?
1: What was it that they thought they needed to, what ground rules they needed to have
2: laid out before they could just tell you who they thought it was? The the biggest ground rule that they wanted was assurance from the FBI that if it was his brother, that we would not seek the death penalty.
1: Okay. Okay. All right.
2: we, We said, no, we can't do that. That's, not within our provenance. That's the provenance of the United States attorney who will be prosecuting the case. So we will assure you. And then the second thing was, they said if we give you information and so forth, will you assure us that we don't have a Ruby Ridge or Waco standoff because we don't want our brother killed? And we gave them that assurance that we would arrest him in such a manner, if it was in fact him, uh, that we wouldn't expose him to danger, which we did. And I developed that um, arrest scenario, uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that uh, we took him out of that cabin uh, so quickly he didn't even know who we were or what we did until it was too late.
1: That whole explanation,
2: those ground rules,
1: you know, really make me feel good. Not necessarily because he was, you know, delaying providing the information, but his reasons were, were were pure. I mean, it was it was for the love of oh, his brother.
2: I, I have no problem. I'd I have a very difficult time turning my brother in. Let me tell you, you know, people people need to look at it that way. You know, and and the hero in this thing, although David. I, I will give, I give David credit. I always have given David credit. But the hero, real hero in this thing, was David's wife, because she was much more objective, and she looked through. Um, all of the rationalizations that her husband used as to why the Unabomber wasn't his brother. And one of the things that we did, another rule that we broke, was we solicited the media's help. And Jim Freeman became the media spokesman and worked closely with all kinds of media all over the country. We were on every investigative program. We were on the news. We were in newspapers and what have you, putting forth work what we knew and what we thought about the Unabomber. And um, Linda, David's wife, was paying attention to those things. And what really troubled her was right before the last two killings, the killing of Thomas Mosier in New Jersey and the killing of Gilbert Murray in Sacramento, she knew that Ted Kaczynski came to her husband and her and requested money. And he had separated himself from... Ted had from his family years before. Didn't want anything to do with them. Called them the most vile, filthy names in the in the world, including his mother and so forth. But right before both of those killings, he came to David and asked for money. And David and Linda sent him money. And Linda was fearful that inadvertently she and her husband, through their love for his brother, had financed the killing of... Gilbert Murray, and Thomas Mosier. Mm-hmm. And she was right. They had. And finally, when it dawned on them, after all of Susan Swanson's investigation, after uh, going to a former FBI agent who uh, uh, couldn't say A hey or NAY, couldn't discount him, it couldn't rule him in, and so on and so forth, and doing all of that work, they were very concerned that he would kill again. And they didn't want... That responsibility. And they were absolutely right. We found a fully functional operational anti-personnel bomb, the best he'd ever made under his bed in his cabin after Tom McDaniel and myself and Jerry Burns arrested him. And even though he promised he wouldn't kill again, there was an anti-personnel bomb under his uh, bed with several hundred pieces of individual manufactured shrapnel on the exterior of the bomb designed to kill a person, not to commit an act of sabotage. So, um, you know, they they were right in their concern. It just took them a while to build up to coming forth and uh, giving us the information that was necessary.
1: I have another question, because I think this would be interesting too. How many other people contacted you after seeing that manifesto in the paper, saying that they also knew who wrote
2: it? Well, that was part of the 53,000 calls we got. (laughs) I I didn't separate them out by uh, uh, date, but a considerable number of those 53,000 calls were uh, from people uh, very similar saying that. And, you know, we've taken, over the years, various people have been critical and what have you and saying we only looked at certain things and we only, uh, we didn't look at uh, everything that we should, but, you know, we had 409 suspects, actual suspects, 409 of them that were reported to us by various family members. We had 60 brothers, including David, nine brothers, 46 brother-in-laws, 10 husbands, and the category I like the best we had 160 ex-wives reporting their husbands, just in case he might be in the public. <laughs> 16 fathers, 3 stepfathers, 3 father-in-laws, 17 sons, 1 adopted son, 4 stepson, 13 son-in-laws, 13 uncles, and 12 nephews and 39 cousins. And they all told us that their relative was a Unabomber with equal fervency to David. So, you know, again a labor-intensive, manpower-intensive investigation, and to try to discount all of those things was extremely difficult. And what made this particular one different was
1: that David had a copy of that original writing yes. that to compare with the manifesto.
2: Absolutely. And it was almost identical.
1: And if he didn't have and, that, and all he had was a suspicion... And he would have been lumped in with all of those other people.
2: Well, probably not lumped in with all of them, but because in addition to that previous document, his mother was being moved from Chicago to where he lived, and uh, she had saved every letter she'd ever gotten from her son, from Ted. And David got his mother to agree to work with us also, So we got all of the correspondence from David and and Ted, from David. We got all the correspondence between his mother and Ted from his mother. And we were able to construct timelines showing where he was at particular periods of time and what he was doing and what he was saying. So it, it was, you know, the... The document that he had was extremely important, but so were a lot of those other documents. We, it was it was just a major uh, a major thing to put together all of those um, uh, documents uh, of a uh, timeline, establishing where he was, so that we could show because we didn't have any forensic evidence from him.
1: No fingerprints, no pieces of hair,
2: no clothing. Um, well, we I under- he planted evidence, for instance, okay. You was saying no pieces of hair. Yes, we did. We had pieces of hair. We had pieces of hair recovered from a couple of the bombs. And the initial artist concept of him was in color, and it showed the Unabomber having blonde hair. Well, Ted Kaczynski took advantage of that. He would go to bus stations. He wrote about this, so that's how we know. He would go to bus stations and go into the restrooms and collect hair from the dressing area. And he would take that hair home and clean it. And then he would take a blonde hair, cut it in half, and tape that blonde hair inside a bomb. And then he'd write, I did this so that I hope the blonde hair survives the bomb blast and that the bomb investigators find it. And they will deduce that since it was on the inside of the bomb, it inadvertently fell from the head of the bomb maker. Then he took the other half of that hair and would put it in the next bomb and write about, hopefully they'll find it, and now they'll do a hair comparison, because we didn't have DNA back at this time. And they'll deduce that the Unabomber has blonde hair, Mm -hmm. which everybody did, but he didn't have blonde hair.
1: Now, where was he writing this? Where was this written? He's writing it in a a journal that we took out of his cabin. Oh, so (laughs) he wrote a journal of all of the things that he was doing. That's that's nice, too. That was nice to have, I guess well, we took
2: 44,000 pages of writings out of his cabin. Wow. He was and how and how many letters?
1: How many letters did his his mother uh, have, the correspondence huh, to help build that timeline?
2: A trunk full. Wow. I can't tell you. I've got a uh, I had a document we had a doc, we had a book on on documents that uh, uh, I don't know how many pages long, but it was huge on all the documents. But he also had in his cabin the uh, FBI fingerprint manual that I was given when I went through training school. He studied fingerprints. He treated everything that he did on his bombs to remove fingerprints. He filed everything down, he emery clothed everything. He treated uh, the papers and documents with uh, a concoction of uh, soybean oil that he had. He did all kinds of stuff. He knew that stamps, He never went into a post office to mail something. He put excessive amounts of postage on his bombs that he could just drop the bomb in the mail so he wouldn't be seen. But he knew that postal employees were fingerprinted in order to get their job. So he treated all the stamps that he used so that the postal employees' fingerprints weren't on the stamps that he got from a stamp machine so that we could, it would lead us back to a location that he'd been at uh oh, wow he, he, he did he had an i q of one seventy you know it's it's just amazing he the things that he did to avoid detection we have probably i don't know forty charts prepared for court to show all of the things that he did to avoid detection, including. uh, Changing aluminum when he melted it down, adding things to glue so we couldn't erase glue, to uh, filtering aluminum powder from paint in order, uh, instead of going to the paint store, the craft store, and buying aluminum powder. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. When he would go out on what he described to be his forays, he would, because he was a very gaunt person, uh, he would uh, pack his cheeks with uh, wax. He would pack his nose with cotton. He would uh, uh, do anything to alter his appearance and so forth. I mean, just on and on and on. So, um, very difficult person with that kind of intelligence um, to try to locate in a traditional uh, investigation.
1: Unbelievable. I mean, to use this brilliance, this genius IQ for this purpose is, is just kind of sad.
2: Well, I was, yeah, and you know, and he, and you know, we had that big victimology project, huge project. I mean, the guys that did it and the girls and women that did it that did a wonderful job, but there was no connection between any of his victims. He selected his victims as being representational of things that he disliked. He disliked university professors, uppity professors. He disliked graduate students. So several of his early bombs were in graduate student areas of universities and targeted against university professors. He hated uh, uh, big businessmen. He hated government officials. He hated uh, uh, law enforcement. He hated the airline industry because planes flew over the wilderness and destroyed the tranquility of the wilderness. So he would select people who were representational. Of those particular fields, he hated people who manipulated other people's minds, like psychologists and uh, um, Dr. Epstein, who was working on uh, uh, research on Down syndrome. Uh, uh, he believed, you know, he didn't think that, that was right that 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 should be being done. I just somewhere along the line, he got uh, screwed up. He got confused, you know. And the the psychologists and the psychiatrists will tell you all kinds of things, but uh, you know, he, he graduated. Uh, Uh, From high school, two years early, he was promoted, uh, you know, past two grades. Uh, He graduated when he was 16 years old, barely 16. He went to Harvard, got his uh, uh, BS in uh, four years, uh, uh, went on to the University of Michigan and got his PhD in two years and came to uh, uh, Berkeley, California on a full professor uh, track. uh, And at the time, he wrote, he was doing it just to accumulate enough money. So he could go to the wilderness and buy a place and begin his campaign of killing people he didn't like. So how early had he started looking at this plan then? Well, the earliest that we know from any of his writings was uh, sometime uh, in college, probably in undergraduate school maybe or in graduate school, definitely in graduate school. One of his targets that he sent a bomb to was a professor at the University of Michigan, and he was a psychology professor there uh, who had written a book called Understanding Human Behavior. Very successful, uh, independently wealthy because that book had been used as a textbook in most uh, psychology 101 classes back in the uh, uh, 60s uh, at that particular time. And um, he targeted him and sent him a a bomb trying to to kill him. Fortunately for the professor, his graduate assistant opened it instead of him. (laughs) So yeah, but, He was doing very controversial um, research on memory retention and transfer, and uh, Kaczynski didn't like that. He thought that was wrong to be doing that kind of uh, work. So a very unusual person, a very um, unique individual who presented a lot of very unique
1: problems. Max, this is absolutely fascinating. So you've taken us to the point now where we know who the Unabomber is. So why don't we stop now? And then next week, we'll come back and we'll do an episode just on what you did once you had identified him. Because I take it that you just can't go arrest him. Now you're putting together the case. And how do you take that time to be able to get a warrant when you're also fearful that he could be setting up a bomb for the next victim? So we'll talk about that in part two of this episode. Sounds good.
0: And that's the end of part one. Come back again next week for episode 56, part two of the Unabomber terrorist Ted Kaczynski case. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Max Knoll. And this time you really should check out those photos. Remember, Max is the person who put the handcuffs on the Unabomber and he's got the pictures to prove it including that famous Newsweek cover photo of Max Knoll with Ted Kaczynski. There's also a link to an FBI overview of the case with a video of his cabin in Montana. And there's a Washington Post article, which includes a timeline of all 16 bombings and of the progress of the investigation. And there's also a link so you can find out more information about Max Knoll's book about the Unabomber. This was a great episode, so don't forget to share it with your friends, your family and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find all the social media share buttons. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week, but if you're looking for something to read, you know I have an answer for that. You can always pick up a copy of Max Nolte's book Unabomber, How the FBI Broke Its Own Rules to Capture the Terrorist Ted Kaczynski, and you can pick up a copy of my crime novel, Pay to Play. This episode was sponsored by FBIretired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.